Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patient Talk Podcast, delivered to you by Omni Health Insights. In this episode, recorded in partnership with Northwestern Memorial Hospital, I'll be chatting with Dr. Ankit Bharat, Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Northwestern Memorial in Chicago, about his experiences performing double lung transplants for COVID-19 patients. In June 2020, Northwestern Memorial conducted the first double lung transplant on a COVID-19 patient in the US in what was described as a milestone. The patient was young, in her 20s, yet had spent six weeks on a ventilator. So I began by asking Dr. Barat about the extent of damage in a patient's lungs to warrant a double transplant. So we were involved with the surge of these patients since we got hit with the COVID in Chicago way back in early part of this year and way back in March. Uh, Although we had a slow trickle and suddenly kind of exploded. So, you know, it was very fascinating that these patients followed a very unpredictable pattern of disease progression. In some patients, we saw the injury get to the point of being quite severe, but then it resolved in a relatively short period of time. But in a lot of patients, this continued to get worse over the period of time, and then it achieved a state of what we call fibrosis. One of the interesting things that we started to observe in a number of these patients who progressed to that point of fibrosis or non-resolving lung injury was the development of major complications, unlike anything we've seen before, for example, with other infectious diseases like influenza or bacterial infection, bacterial pneumonias. But with this, these lungs, especially after the first few weeks of the onset of this lung injury and what we call ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, that's the medical term. Once they got beyond that two to four week window and they were not getting better in that time frame, we started to see a number of secondary complications. So spontaneous bleeding into the lungs, outside the lungs, collapse of the lungs, something called pneumothorax, development of infection from very aggressive bacteria. So these patients mostly were being on the ventilator for all that time, and they were being exposed to all these other bugs that are floating around in the hospital. So they started to develop secondary infections from pretty aggressive bugs that reside in the hospital systems and so forth. And this is not just our observation. This is an observation that was observed globally. The reason I explain all this is to emphasize, you know, how much beating these lungs were taking throughout the course of this illness. Being on the ventilator, that itself caused a lot of trauma to the lungs, having the secondary complications from either the direct effects of the virus or just the pathogenesis of the disease, the inflammation, the immune response and all that, and then development of other infections within the lungs. We knew that we have to do something and, and we have to have treatments such as transplant for the select group of patients who may be otherwise healthy, young at baseline, and they progress to that state. Despite the best medical care that was being offered at that point, and including using treatments such as remdesivir and steroids and all these IL-6 inhibitors at that point, although that didn't pan out that well, remdesivir and steroids, these patients receiving all these treatments that were established. And, you know, a number of patients did get better early on in their illness, but then, as I mentioned, a significant proportion of patients did not. They progressed to this point. So we had this at the back of our mind that for some patients, we'll have to offer transplant 
within that time frame. Otherwise, they'll continue to develop all these major complications, which ultimately leads to the death of the patient from multi-organ failure. So the clinical challenges there was then, how do you pull that off? You just haven't seen what the inside of the chest cavity looks like, how the patients who are so sick are going to respond to a major operation such as a double lung transplant, which is in general considered one of the most complex medical procedures that can be performed. So how do you take someone so sick through such a complex procedure and just all the unknowns about the anatomy inside the chest and all that. So we put in a lot of processes in place. And and one of the things that really made a difference was this autopsy program that we had. You know, some patients' family consented to doing the autopsy. So we examined their chest cavity and the damage that's happening in these lungs. So that gave us some idea about what things look like. So that helped us prepare for it. But during that whole process of doing the autopsies and the actual transplant, these lungs were so damaged. We took some pictures and we showed it to some of our colleagues and asked them without telling them, what does this picture remind you? What does this look like? And I would tell you, less than 30% of the people that we talked to said that these are lungs. You know, people said weird things. Someone said this may be cooked steak. Someone said, you know, this is some kind of bad liver. Someone said this is an organ from animals. I mean, it was like weird kind of thing that people were saying. So the lungs could not even be recognized as lungs. You know, that's how bad the damage was in some of these patients. Now, obviously, that's probably not true in patients who recover and get better. We never saw those lungs because these patients got better. So I'm only talking about patients who either died or you know, the three transplants that we perform lung transplant on. There's a lot that we don't know about COVID-19. We don't really fully understand the nature of this virus. So what can you tell us about the link between COVID-19 and lung damage? Why is the extent so deep and damaging? What I'll say is just based on hypotheses, I cannot tell you anything conclusive. No one can. That's the unfortunate part. Despite Having dealt with this and being in this pandemic for many, many months now, we still have very limited understanding of how this virus causes the damage and what are the biological factors behind it. It's so unclear. And all the publications that have come out there, including from major centers and our centers, they're very conflicting. And it's very difficult to come up with very hardcore conclusions about the pathogenesis of this disease because of that. And the number of factors that play a role in it, one, for example, it's, you know, the patients that are present in different parts of the world and the country, they're very different. Biologically, they're different. So a study done at one center may not necessarily hold true in a different center or different region because the biology of patients may be very different. And this is what we saw, like, for example, reports coming out of China and Italy, they had somewhat different conclusions than what some centers within the U.S. found. So it's hard. And then the other thing that complicated this was the lockdown and the fear that everybody had prevented a lot of research at the top academic institutions. So the institutions and the research labs and all, they were all worried about the safety of their staff as well as transmitting the virus and so forth. So people were not doing any research and COVID research was really, really restricted. 
even on the clinical sample side, one of the key evaluations that we perform is related to the pathology analysis of the specimens and or biopsies. So even that had to be very regimented and we had to go through a pretty rigorous steps to make sure the virus is killed before the samples are processed and all that. So a number of factors played a role in the state, leading to the state where we are at right now, which is very limited understanding of the biology. Having said that, I will tell you some hypotheses that we've all kind of formulated based on discussions within our group and groups outside our our center nationally, internationally. So, you know, this virus seems to enter the body and the most common route for entry is the lungs. People have hypothesized other forms of transmission, but the most common is through the lungs. And from there, it enters the cells that line the respiratory surfaces in the lungs. And from there, it seems to then trigger a very potent inflammatory response. And that inflammatory response then starts to cause pretty severe damage. So in fact, it just seems like the inflammation that is inherent to any individual is important for an individual's response against the pathogens, the viruses, and the bacteria. That itself may be causing damage here. Now, why it happens in certain individuals and not in other individuals, that really is just being still explored. We just don't have a good idea. There have been a lot of biological factors that have been postulated. For example, the expression of certain receptors, such as this ACE2 receptor, that is something called Tempris2, which may be different in different ethnic groups, different disease states, and so forth. But again, these are just hypotheses, as I said. We just don't quite understand. So, for example, one of the hypotheses is that this ACE2 receptor, which is the entry point of this virus, and is highly expressed, as I said, in certain ethnic groups and certain conditions. So, for example, people have shown that if you have high blood pressure or if you have certain other disease states, this ACE2 receptor can be much more expressed in your cells, and that allows more virus to enter the cells that line the respiratory surfaces. And then it can start to multiply through this Tempris 2 and then trigger a much more potent inflammatory response leading to more damage. So just give you one example of the hypotheses that has been floating around. People are working on developing certain therapeutics against the ACE2 receptor, for example. So ultimately, it does seem like this virus causes some direct damage to the cells, but seems that immune response gets augmented and really exaggerated in certain individuals, and that's what leads to this permanent damage. That's a very interesting response. So clearly, there's a lot more work that needs to be done in yeah. terms of um, research. And given the high prevalence still of a disease, cases continue to rise every day. You know, I guess there should be a cause for concern still. And so in that vein, how common is this problem exactly? Are we seeing an increase in the number of similar cases around the world? And where exactly are we seeing these increases? Or is it a universally kind of spread problem? I think it's a pretty universal spread, in my opinion. And again, what I'm about to say is just a hypothesis. You know, I, I don't want to say that this is vetted based on hardcore evidence, because as I said, no one has. So, you know, we go through these phases of increase in cases, then it goes down, and that happens at different regions. So, for example, let's take United States for the sake of discussion. So, New York was really hit, and it peaked, and then after that, the cases really started to come down. And there, in that region, 
people got aware. People also started to take this more seriously and they were taking precautions and so forth. And then clearly there is development of immunity that most of the pathogens that enter the body, they trigger some kind of immunity. So naturally, if a population gets faced with something new like this, some people will always perish. That's just always what happens. I mean, there's always that susceptible patient population within that cohort. And then on the other side, they're always part of the population that is going to be resistant to that new pathogen. And then there are some patients that then develop immunity and they may become resistant to that pathogen. So you see in the course of the pandemic or any new pandemic, you'll see the number of cases grow and peak at a certain point and usually correlates with people taking it more seriously, taking precautions, but also the development of that immunity and then plateauing of the susceptible patient population. At some point, you know, you've had the most deaths and, uh, and most of those susceptible patients within that population are no longer being exposed because they've perished. So then the cases start to come down. Unfortunately, because this is a highly transmissible virus, it then moves to the different region. And that is related to the social interactions that people have, which, for example, travel. People then, you know, from New York State, people started to move out. Obviously, part of that was based on the fear. So then they're moving out to other regions. They're going to the suburbs. They're going to other parts in the country without realizing then they are taking that virus with them, especially if they're exposed to it. So then this virus goes to the other parts. And this is one of the patterns we saw even in the United States. It started from the main cities, which were the main airport hubs, New York, Chicago, California, LA, those kind of regions. And from there, it started to migrate into the deeper parts of the country, the suburbs, the, the smaller you know, airports and stuff like that. So globally, I think that's what we are somewhat seeing and people as they move to different parts and take the virus with them, it just starts to infect these different parts in the world. And unfortunately, it'll just have to follow that same increase and then plateau and start to go down. We are hoping that the immunity that develops as a result of the exposure to this virus will be lasting so that as the cases come down, people don't get reinfected and you have an upsurge. And hopefully, you know, the new vaccines that are being worked on, they would really help increase that immunity within the population so we don't see the second surge and so forth, especially in the patients who've already been exposed. And that is, if we see that the patients who've already been exposed with the virus, they start to get this again, that's going to be a real problem because that means you cannot get permanent immunity and that will mean that this virus is going to stay with us probably forever. I hope that ends up not being the case and I hope the development of vaccine can induce sufficient immunity that will make enough patients resistant to this virus and we can eradicate it. But only time will tell. Generate business leads at Omnia Health Live Americas. The teams behind Florida International Medical Expo FIME in the United States, Hospital R in Brazil, and ExpoMed in Mexico have joined forces to bring our audience a virtual expo from November 2nd to the 6th, designed specifically for the North, Central, and South American regions. Best of all, the event is free to attend. Find out more at live.omnia-health.com Americas.
you mentioned earlier that exposure to bugs in a hospital, but also being on a ventilator, where uh, factors that incur further damage. Is there a way we can limit those factors so that we can prolong the health of patients' lungs? The best thing that we can do for these patients is provide the highest level ICU care. There have been certainly some drugs, medications that have been shown to be effective. For example, remdesivir and dexamethasone are the two drugs that have clearly shown benefit in the care of these patients. But in my opinion, the thing that makes the biggest difference is the really high-quality ICU care. So once these patients get to the point of needing support for their oxygen levels and carbon dioxide, meaning their lungs have sustained a pretty severe damage and they need to be on a ventilator, at that point, the really high-level ICU care with the specialized ventilator strategies, specialized multidisciplinary team with, you know, having really outstanding respiratory therapists, our nursing staff, and so forth. One of the challenges that most centers faced early on was the fear, again, of taking care of these patients. And the staff were having limited contact with the patient. We just didn't have enough information how this virus being transmitted and all that, and people wanted to limit that contact. So instead of one-on-one nursing care, which has, you know, hundreds of interactions between the nurse and the patient throughout the course of their shift, now we are really restricting that to safeguard our staff. And it's not just nursing staff. I'm talking, you know, even physicians, respiratory therapists and all that. So, So that led to more problems because you're probably missing out on opportunities to treat those complications as they're arising in the patient. So now with people getting more comfortable recognizing that you can avoid transmissions uh, between patient and providers by using those precautions and masks and all that, people are more comfortable and the quality of care that is being provided to these patients is dramatically improved. So that itself is quite important. Bronchoscopies is something that we have routinely done. We were one of the centers that started doing this very early on when everybody else said it should not be done. And we had found that a number of these patients were developing these mucus plugs inside their airways. And by doing the bronchoscopies, you can clear that out and improve their quality of lungs. You can enhance their recovery. And then you can also detect the development of these secondary infections before it becomes life-threatening. I just give you that as just one example of a number of things that can be implemented. But that required us to become very comfortable taking care of these patients and recognize that the risks are low as long as you take all those precautions. So by getting more involved with the patient, treating them aggressively with high quality care and having multiple teams with different level of expertise, putting their minds together. So infectious disease, the pulmonologist, the surgical team, all of us working together to come up with the best care plan also made a huge difference. Let's talk about the operation itself. Let's talk about the uh, transplants. Was it more challenging than usual? This lung transplant and the subsequent transplants that we performed in these COVID patients were perhaps the most complex transplant procedures that we have ever done in our, I would say, in our careers, and probably agree to that statement also. You take a patient who's so sick, has been in the hospital for a number of weeks before they are deemed to be transplant candidate, and that requires us to first establish that the lungs will absolutely not get better. So we have to give sufficient time to these patients before we can 
clearly say that these lungs are not coming back ever. So that usually means having these patients on the vent and on other support devices, for example, ECMO, which is a heart-lung support device for a number of weeks, usually more than six weeks. So these patients have gone through a very tough course during that time, being immobilized, they're bed-bound. In majority of the cases, they've been sedated, they've been paralyzed. They've had, as I mentioned, a number of other complications with infections. And frequently, we also see temporary failure of other organs as well. So these patients are already, they've been malnourished, they have muscle tone and everything has become really weak. And now we are talking about a really complex procedure. So that is the first challenge. How do you take someone through that? And medically, they're so unstable. So we have to be really thoughtful about who we take and who we consider, but also be really prepared. Then the second aspect is the actual surgery. So the surgery itself was very, very complex. When we opened the first patient's chest, and this is the same thing we found in second and our third recipients that we recently did, there's no normal anatomy inside. The inflammation, the damage is so bad, you cannot identify the normal tissue planes, and they don't exist. Analogy I give is of a overcooked steak. You know, imagine everything is just fused into one. It's all completely charred. And you cannot dissect things as quickly or as efficiently as you do in a normal transplant. So that poses a second challenge. And the things that we've seen in these three transplants is the formation of extreme scar tissue between the lung and all the structures around the major blood vessels, the heart, diaphragm, the chest wall, the ribs. So cutting all of that out takes a lot of extra time. And during that process, there could be bleeding because you're cutting a lot of abnormal tissue. So then you're talking about giving more blood during the surgery and patients who are already quite sick and unstable. The surgery took about 10 hours. And it's interesting that all three transplants took about 10 hours of actual surgery. The, the whole, the, the entire time they were in the operating rooms, close to 12 hours. That includes getting them ready for surgery. And then after the surgery, we, you know, get them ready to leave the operating room. But the actual surgery interestingly enough, took 10 hours for all the three operations. And normally it takes about, you know, four to six hours for a double lung transplant. So it's substantially long. And that is because of all the things that I just described. Are you using technology in any way? By that, I mean the latest technologies to help make a difference in surgery. Or is this something that you're not currently doing? We actually had to be very, I would say, creative in how we did these operations. So we absolutely use the most cutting-edge technology to support their body during that process. So the heart-lung bypass devices and the machines that we use, they have to be really cutting-edge. And one of the things that we had to do in these patients was to come up with a strategy that allowed us to do this operation without giving any blood thinners. So as I said, there's a lot of scar tissue. There is a very high risk of bleeding and these patients are unstable and so forth. So normally when you use the heart-lung support device, which is required in these kind of patients because their lungs are completely destroyed. Their heart is so weak because it's pumping against lungs, which are like essentially rocks. So the heart is failing. So they have pretty bad heart going into this operation. So you have to use the heart-lung bypass to support the rest of the body. But one of the things that is required to put someone on heart lung bypass is use of blood thinners because you're draining the blood outside, the entire blood from the human body, from that patient, you're draining it outside into a device, and then the device then 
puts the oxygen, takes the carbon dioxide out, and then pumps it back into the body, bypassing the lungs and heart. That's why it's called the heart-lung bypass. Now, the problem with that is, you know, you have to, as I said, you have to use the blood thinners because once the blood comes out of the human body, it can clot. So high doses of blood thinners are required normally. But if you do that in these patients, they will not stop bleeding. You will lose these patients during the operation if, you know, you get that level of blood thinners. So we had to come up with a strategy to not use any blood thinner or a very limited amount of blood thinners. So that was an interesting thing that we did, and that really did help us get these patients through it. So we had to reconfigure our machines and use some of the most cutting-edge tools to pull something off like that. And how are the patients doing now? They're doing fantastic. The first patient actually sent me a video yesterday of her doing leg presses. I'm like, wow, she can (laughs) perform heavier leg presses than... I can't. I mean, so it was so great to see that. She's done fantastic. In fact, she came and visited third patient who we recently performed just a couple of weeks ago uh, to encourage him and his wife, who are from another state. They came to us because the local centers declined him just for a bunch of different reasons. So we accepted him um, just over six weeks ago, and then we just transplanted him about two and a half weeks ago. So he's doing really well. Our first recipient came to visit him in his room, and it really was such a joy to see them interact. Our second patient is also doing fantastic. Yesterday, he was in CBS this morning sharing his story. The first two patients are outside that recovery phase. I mean, they become strong and all that. They're all breathing normally. They don't require any oxygen. The first patient, as I said, she's doing lots of, you know, work and doing a lot of fairness and just living a normal life so far. Now, they have to take immunosuppression for the rest of their lives, which is really adds a a small inconvenience in the grand scheme of things. But they're very compliant and they're very happy. They they can breathe normally and they're out there back with their families who are ecstatic to see them back. And it was tough for them. You know, the second patient, for example, spent almost 100 days on ECMO, which is the highest level of heart-lung bypass support device that we can use in these patients. So he was on it for 100 days and then get the transplant and then spent another four weeks in the hospital. And during that time, especially the early time, he had no contact with his family. I mean, they could just call him and, and stuff. And then after the transplant, he was basically by himself. He had relaxed some of the visitor restrictions as the CDC and our state allowed us to do. But Imagine being by yourself and in such a bad situation, and I feel for these patients quite a bit. But things are getting better now. I I think now with the visitor policies being relaxed, uh, we have the opportunity to allow the families to be with their loved ones. The patients are doing great. The third one is still in the hospital. It's going to require another couple of weeks. Typically, these patients spend about a month after the surgery in the hospital. Normally, after a double lung transplant, our length of stay is about two weeks in the hospital, but the COVID patients end up spending about a month, and then they typically go to a rehab, and they get stronger there, and then from there, they go home. Okay, so that's really uh, encouraging to hear that their quality of life and their well-being has improved so much. But that being said, is there not a psychological factor to be aware of? And the reason I say this is because even though on a physical level, they're much improved. Mentally, they must know that the virus is still out there. So great question. I think that's a real challenge and we have to constantly counsel them 
about this. That was one of her biggest concerns when she was discharged. And, and she said, I just lost my life. I just had such a horrible few months with no fault of mine. And she was staying home and following every precaution. And despite that, she got into that state. So now with new lungs, this happens again. And, you know, that fear is there. And even our second recipient is asking the same questions. The best we can do is just to continue to counsel them. And they're very compliant with all the precautions and they're doing everything to make sure they don't get it again. So we'll have to see. I hope they will not get it again. And even if they did get it again, I hope it doesn't get to this point of severe lung damage of the new lungs. Only time will tell. I just think we don't have sufficient information about predicting what's going to happen with this. And even if they got it, how severe it's going to be. So the best we are doing right now is to constantly work with them to emphasize the need for taking those precautions right now. Let's have a, a final question, I think. What lessons can you offer to other physicians around the world? So anyone listening to this facing similar cases in their respective community or country, what can be learned from your experiences having conducted a series of transplants on COVID patients? Yeah, so what I will say is the following. So we've learned a few important things in caring for these patients. The first thing is transplant is absolutely a life-saving and a viable option for a select group of patients. So this is not for everybody. This is not a cure for COVID, but it's absolutely a life-saving treatment for some patients. And that has to be determined on a case-by-case basis. And uh, there are a lot of factors that play a role in it. Uh, We generally, just broadly, what we feel is if there is a patient who has very manageable comorbid conditions or limited or no comorbid conditions, who's otherwise quite functional before all this happened to him or her, and gets into this bind and has the failure of lungs, we would consider a lung transplant as a treatment of last resort. I also want to emphasize that this lung transplant should only be considered once we have determined that lungs are not going to get better and we have given the patient the evidence-based treatments that are out there. So it should not be the first thing that we should be thinking about in every COVID patient. It really should be the last thing once we've established that lungs are not going to get better. The next thing I will say is what we've learned is once we take these old lungs out, and put the new lungs in, the bugs that are residing in those damaged lungs don't seem to come back. I say that because that's been one of the important reasons why a lot of people decline transplant. But in this situation, we found that once you put the new lungs in, even those highly aggressive and antibiotic resistant bugs do not come back in these new lungs. And then finally, I would say that a big contraindication for transplant has been related to the frailty of patients prior to the transplant, which is a really important thing to consider. So in normal circumstances, we would not consider patients who are not ambulatory. But in these patients, what we found is despite their frailty, despite being in the hospital for a number of weeks and having gone through major complications, once we get those new lungs in, they tend to start getting better reasonably quickly. So that deconditioning and frailty and so forth, which are normally contraindications for transplant, may not be as important, In again, in a select group of patients. So if you have 
a young patient who was healthy at baseline and has gone through six plus weeks of complex medical illness and they're not able to get up and all that, once we do the transplant, they will recover quite quickly. I also emphasize that this will only be successful long-term in different parts of the globe. I hope other centers, recently India did their first lung transplant, so I hope other countries consider it and it will only be successful if we keep talking to each other. If there is no no shame in reaching out to other centers that have done this and learned foreign lessons to get gain more knowledge and then also share other centers have done this, you know, they should share their experience with their local centers and so forth. So we have to really talk to each other and and really learn from each other's experiences so we can successfully save as many lives as we can. So to summarize, the most common COVID transmission is through the lungs. And in certain individuals, it triggers a particularly strong inflammatory response. Why this is, is still being explored. In fact, many biological factors have been postulated. Affected patients are cared for through providing high quality ICU care with specialized ventilator strategies and multiple teams with different expertise. Patients are kept on a ventilator for more than six weeks. In the event that a lung transplant is required, however, there are further challenges. The transplant itself is a complex procedure. There is no normal anatomy inside, but damage is so severe. Dr. Barat compared it to overcooked steak with everything fused into one and charred. Cutting out extreme scar tissue takes a lot of time and there is a high risk of bleeding. The surgery itself takes about 10 hours and 12 hours in the operating room overall. And typically it takes around four to six hours for a double lung transplant. However, cutting edge technology is used in the surgery, such as in the heart-lung bypass. Yet despite the difficult ordeal they went through, today's patients are now fully recovered, breathing normally, very happy and living very normal lives. Thanks once again to Dr. Ankit Barat, Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. And finally, if you'd like to get involved in an upcoming podcast episode, reach out to me. My email address is Matthew with two T's dot Brady at informer.com. And for the latest news and insight from the world of healthcare, visit insights.omnia-health.com. Thank you.